Welcome, and um, this is the first of the conversation series in architecture and art that I'm curating. I'm really pleased um, that Fenella Kernerbone's able to moderate for us, and many of you will know her from uh, TV, ABC, and uh, Triple J, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> every de every design event that you could go to, and um, uh, we've also got Hugo Moline and Heidi Axelson, who are the uh, um, architecture and artist duo behind Owner Occupy, which is inside. Um, and they're going to speak about that work and uh, some of the ideas behind that work. Um, and Tim Horton, uh, New South Wales Architects Registrar, who's um, recently moved from Adelaide and is making big waves, including the uh, re overhaul of the Sydney Architecture Festival, which is happening next month. Um, so... Um, the topic today is called Shelter Hacks. So basically um, we're looking at some of the concepts in Owner Occupy, which is a piece around um, property. Um, it's a reaction to the kind of housing unaffordability crisis. It's, um, a, it's sort of, I'll let them talk about it more, but um, it basically led to a whole lot of questions about what is shelter and how do we need, um, how do we create architecture for people, um, for cities, how do, how, how do architect, what role does the architect or um, policy maker have in creating the spaces that we inhabit? Um, so um, all sorts of issues will be raised tonight including, you know, what are sort of some hypothetical um, models for housing that might emerge in the future, um, what are, um, what actually makes a house a home, um, what are the things, um, you know, I won't go on and on because I think um, these guys have a lot more to say on the topic and I've specifically chosen them because of um, the sort of confluence of ideas between these speakers. So I'll pass on to Fenella to continue the conversation. I just, you just said something really cool. I was like, I must write that down. <laughs> Hypothetical. There you go. Um, please pause. Hi, everybody. And let's give our panellists a round of applause as well. This is Heidi, Hugo and Tim. They're here. And also welcome to you. So, yes, shelter hacks. What does a home mean? What can architects do to make ourselves happy or unhappy? And what are some great solutions in between? Um, you've all had an opportunity to wander through Owner Occupy. We can't start without talking about what Owner Occupy is all about. I had to duck my head at one point to get through. So, so Heidi, what on earth is Owner Occupy? Okay. Um, well, we. it's a kind of our reaction to the situation not only in Sydney but um, across the world with housing unaffordability. Um, it's not at all a solution to housing unaffordability but um, it's, it's there to um, raise some questions and also I guess have a bit of a comment about, about the housing crisis that that we have. And you have you sort of set up this proposition in your artistic statement that this idea that you know you can create terra nullius or, or something like that that you can wipe the slate clean with ideas like this and start again. How how does that manifest itself? What's that idea? Um, well, I guess it's just a bit of a reminder, kind of you know the state that we've got ourselves into in cities like Sydney, um, <clears throat> where there's this kind of uh, feeding frenzy of buying property, buying investment places to kind of get a leg up and get into the property game. And we're all, you know, working on these little tiny pieces of land. But you go back 200 years and there was a completely different system of ownership which was just disregarded in order to kind of lay the, I guess, legal fiction for on which we've then built these property empires. And so we're kind of looking at, well, you know, we've done it once, we could do it again. You know, at, the, at that point, the colonists chose not to kind of understand or respect or acknowledge the s system of ownership that was pre-existing here. And so what if that happened again? What, what would that look like? And what if that was permanent? And, and, and own occupy the structure, the spatial arrangement that you've done there is, is just one proposition as well. What, what are the decisions that you made? How would we even 
imaginatively, hypothetically, exist in that kind of arrangement? So, yeah, the basic idea is in that kind of world, the only, the only form of ownership is the physical occupation of space. And so that's the kind of premise that we've then designed these dwelling machines around, and that's what you can see throughout the gallery there. And um, the Design machines. Eh? Machines. Machines? Yeah. Dwelling machines. machines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is they're kind of, you know, this, this little contraption that you can use in order to kind of claim your little bit of space and then to try and, you know, make yourself a little bit more comfortable, shade yourself from the sun. And the kind of interesting thing, like it's also, you know, it's a very flexible system, so it's all about kind of you know, expressing yourself as an individual, how you want to put together your little structure. But then when it becomes more interesting and more exciting is when you can start to put them together and make bigger spaces and more collective spaces. And I think that's, that's one of the things that we're trying to hint at is what, what are the possibilities if we do start to look at the way we design things more collectively um, beyond just kind of... Mm this hyper-competitive, individualised... Uh, Investment bandwagon, we talk about yes. that. Yeah, um, yeah. Tim, what, what do you think? These ideas, these, these propositions, I mean, even listening to what Hugo and Heidi have to say, what are your, what are your initial thoughts? Uh, so initial thoughts are that we don't... I'm being looked at. I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's only the beginning, sorry. Tim. It's happening again. Yeah, it's fine. That's right. um, so... Initial thoughts are that we um, often don't reserve the space to have ideas and there is a space that you need in order to have ideas. I would like to start by acknowledging Jean Sherman because you do need to have the space, you need to have the support in order to do so. Um, I knew the Sherman Galleries, I know you by reputation, it's the first time I've been here. I've seen the other fugitive structures as well. Um, You'll be invited back now, Tim. But, but, you know, and this is important and um, there's a great piece of work uh, so, uh, so, a brief disclaimer, fifth of six children, so that makes me two things. One, makes me talk very fast, and B, often means that I have non-linear thoughts because you just got to have the thoughts regardless of whether they're actually composed or not. Um, so here goes a series of non-linear thoughts. But um, it strikes me, Steve Johnson uh, wrote a book called Where Do Good Ideas Come From? And there's a really lovely thing that he sort of says, which is ideas often aren't born fully formed. Um, is this an idea for the domain.com.au tomorrow with property council backing in order to solve the problem? No. Um, but where do the ideas come from and how do they gestate and when do they meet the next idea that takes them to the next level and who, who provides the space in order for that to happen? So the first thing is that that's often not what happens. I've just spent nine years in Adelaide. I can attest I am living proof to the fact that Adelaide is the, is the town that thinks and never grows and Sydney, by golly, is the city that <laughs> grows, grows and never think. thinks. Yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> So how do we, firstly, how as Sydney siders do we invest in the space that we need to think? Because, you know, it's, it's just all, the acceleration is happening, right? We're by just doing, doing exactly this, by experimenting, by thinking outside the exactly box, right. essentially. Yeah. Exactly right. And through that, you know, will we ever arrive at new models that we need? Will we ever arrive at the radical redesign if we approach it the way we normally approach it? You know, are you, are you for or against stamp duty? You know, are you for or against the... Is a size matter? 35 square metre apartment? Tim. Yeah. <laughs> so will they create new models? No, they won't. We'll end up slicing and dicing what we have. So where is the space for the radical redesign? Mm. And this is what's interesting. And behind this, I think, sits really interesting, advanced and sophisticated thinking, which is we're starting to get to kitted parts. We're starting to get to modular um, structures. We're starting to... You know, endlessly customisable, which is both a way of dealing with craft and analogue and technology at the same time. Um, again, what you need is you need space for that to happen, you need the thinking in order to come together. And what's interesting is a, a thought that resonates, which is it is often said that um, art changes the way you see the world, design uh, changes the way you live in the world. And the nice thing is it's not either or, maybe it's a both end. Uh, Hugo, what's, what's your thoughts in response to, to that, this idea almost that uh, it's a kit of parts, it's, an, it's a, a gestation period really that you're provided with to explore new ideas? Yeah, well, I think like as architects we're so often 
just so concerned with coming up with the answer to the problem. We don't think about, well, actually, what, what is the problem here? Like, is it just... What are the, what are the problems as yeah, well? What, what hmm. are the problems and, you know, is there something deeper that we can... Um, to, to the problem of housing unaffordability rather than just, you know, what materials do we use? How can we kind of reduce the minimum standard so that, you know, we can build more dwellings and somehow rely on the market to then make it affordable? There are kind of bigger questions and we don't, yeah, we, we don't have to just leave that up to uh, policymakers and academics to look at that stuff. We can look at it in a very active way as well, I think, and the, the thing that architects and designers do so well, I think, is synthesising a lot of those issues and creating something out of them. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Can, can we, we'll go back to talking about the investment bandwagon. Can, I, can we be really simple and just ask, what does a home mean? What does, we're talking about shelter hacks here, so what exactly does that mean to you? Heidi? Okay, yeah, well, it means a lot of things, I guess. Um, a home is, I guess it's a, it's a deeply personal thing for me. It's like, it's quite an emotional, you have an emotional connection to your home. Um, it's kind of somewhere that you can feel free to create or, you know, garden or, you know, build, I don't know, towards something or build, build on something. You know, that, that's what home in an ideal world is to me. Um, yeah. Mm, Hugo? Um, yeah. And are you going to build me one? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, pretty similar to what Heidi said. And just, you know, that it's a space where you can um, get together with friends and family and kind of nurture your relationships and build build a lot of kind of personal connections into this physical space. Um, there's a beautiful passage by David Suzuki where he's talking about his house and how kind of um, his father-in-law made the garden and his own father made the cabinets and kind of like everything within the house was kind of had all this memory and family embedded in it. Um, and I think that's that's something that's becoming less and less possible as we're having to kind of, you know... Generational change can't stay yeah. in the same place, be passed down from one family to another type yeah. of thing. and right. we move, we're moving on more and more um, and we're at work more and more, much less time at home. And so, yeah. New, new ways of thinking about what a home could be. Tim, your home is here right now. Home is here. Home is three generations living together. Uh, across four stories. Um, so, you know, we're a, we're a terrace, and so that's the physical form. But I agree with Heidi that the um, extraordinary thing is how human it is, how personal it is, how intimate it is, how different it is. One thing that the amazing Jane Frances Kelly from the Grattan Institute always used to start with every time she launched research was this fascination that Australians talk about housing in sort of, you know, as a numbers game. It's kind of there's one model, you know, because we all want it, as if, as if everybody here has exactly the same expectations, needs, etc. Um, uh, the fact that, um, uh, that diversity is not built into the system, uh, the incredible inefficiency with which we deal with this, there is, there is enough housing, there is more housing than we, could, than we possibly need. Every night there are a quarter of a million... Um, households around Australia with one person in it with four bedrooms or more. Mm. You know? Mm. So you do need places to roam, though, don't you? <laughs> you know, need places to roam and you yeah. need the home entertainment that system. That bedroom and all empty, yeah. Media room. So, the, um, so there's not the diversity. There's a mismatch between us as a diverse race and, and sort of the singularity of what we've built, which yeah. is a sign that we have consolidated into a commodity, an idea... Mm as opposed to a diversity of ideas. And it's why some of the stuff we're hearing now on co-housing, it, you know, it ain't new. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's an idea we have had in the past um, and maybe through financial instruments and things like that, all that dark matter that drive who we are is... <laughs> Shouldn't I have said that? Um, is, you know, is sort of driving a singularity of, 
of product, mm. you know, and so housing, what is housing? Deeply intimate, personal, but really actually what is it often? It's often sold to us as, com- as commodity and product. Yeah, yeah, which is exactly yeah. what your your project is really about. It's it's about trying to find a new model when we're living in a world where we're catering to models that are, you know, declining essentially. Um, Hugo, Heidi? Yeah, and you hear, you hear that thing often, like, that you've got to separate your emotional decisions from your financial decisions when you're buying a house and so everyone's ending up kind of buying investment properties before they can actually buy their own house. Yeah, poor people in the Gold Coast are surrounded by investment property owners in Sydney and Melbourne because mm. they can't afford to live here or buy here. Is that, mm. that, that kind of idea. Yeah. We're in an investment property, you know, endless cycle essentially. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the, like, the commodification that goes along with that, like not only is the house itself as a physical item been commodified but the entire kind of aesthetic of homeliness and like rather than actually having that investment of kind of our families having built all our furniture and things like that we now have things that look like they've been hand built or Mm. look like they've been repaired but no one's got time to repair anything anymore Um, and so there's this whole kind of like aesthetics of Authenticity, mm, like handcrafted apartments, the kind of ads yeah. you see. <laughs> you uh, tell me more about this. I, I might need to get this in my apartment. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, just the language that um, is appropriate, like in the marketing of new developments, is kind of you know this um, unique, bespoke, you know, um, handcrafted. It's kind of they've ad- adopted that language to try and sell you something that's not real but mm. you know yeah but is it are they are they adopting that language that may not necessarily be real because it's about us hearkening back to something that we desperately want mm. so is it is there somewhere in the middle perhaps mm. well, i think that you know like if we if we could look outside that like false choice of all the things that we can potentially buy and start looking into some of these old models like co-housing, like the cooperative sector, like community land trusts, like new, more collective models that actually, rather than being based on kind of objects that look like they've got social connectivity, are based in social connectivity and through that you're able to get your housing. Mm. And, and what would some of that look like? Tim, you, you've just come from Adelaide. There's a whole um, project there that you've been t- talking about called, is it 500 plus? 5,000 plus. 5,000 yeah. plus. That wasn't the population no. target. But yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Just for 500 people only. <laughs> We're going to rehouse you. These types of things that Hugo is talking about, co-housing, you brought it up as well earlier, cooperative housing, these are not necessarily new, but it's types of models that we've been, we're slowly kind of getting back to perhaps, or we're realising that they're, they're, they're great. We need to be yeah. doing that. I think part of all of this is driven by kind of the mega scale and kind of as you scale up, you need to kind of personalise down type thing. And the work in Adelaide was saying alongside the big metro strategy that governments always talk about, <clears throat> here we talk about it because Sydney grows, there they talk about it because one day Adelaide will grow. And that's the last joke. It's the last anti-Adelaide joke I make, I promise. Um, and so we were working with the Department of Planning and effectively this was a public engagement project, OK? And it was it was... When it was launched, the minister said that there are two sorts of launches, you know, one with a pen, one with a spade. What's this one? And we said, you're launching a conversation, and the guy wasn't very happy. But what we did was we used designers to lead the conversation on what that metro future kind of looked like. A lot of it was to do with questions of social networks and social sustainability. Mm. And you start with that, and people will get into a conversation about housing where they'll stand back on... I don't really have a view on the balcony. I mean, I'll tell you whether I want a balcony or not. And the answer will be yes, I guess, because I haven't really thought about it. But if you're asking me, sure. Mm. Whereas we didn't start with that. We started with kind of that thing around um, where do people live, how do people live, and how would we want to live, which all mm. sounds very woolly. However, we did some... So we teamed that with some fairly high-end, you know, very professional boffin research. <laughs> and the GIS showed us that there were a whole lot of properties that had these certain characteristics... They were large properties. They were often where Dad had died in the 70s, Mum was still there. Again, four bedrooms, she's by herself. Kids can't actually live with her because they've got a family. They can't afford to live because it's a nice leafy area. 
big block. You know, it's kind of the Gordon Kalara type thing. Kids can't afford to live anywhere close, so they live the other side, which means between Johnny going to sport and Jemima going to ballet, they never kind of get over to mum. You know, she's, <laughs> she's dementing actually now. At the point. So there's a question about what do we do? Anyway, this is a classic case in Adelaide in Unley and places like that. And we were saying, so what if you take a problem and you do the synthesis stuff? Or you take actually five or six little problems and you do the synthesis. So do we want to knock down and rebuild? No, actually, because there's something really lovely about that conservation streetscape and the large trees and whatever. So what if the answer is not sort of, oh, well, we just preserve it? What if the answer is there are some of those which are large and have the laneway? What if we started to take a sharing economy view of the world and we said, well, there's a whole lot of targets written into state and local government plans around diverse and mixed communities, but there's no plan to do anything about it. So what if we started to do that? Well, if we picked up your plan for this diverse and mixed community, what if we looked at all that research around these large properties and the laneways and we said, well, kind of, you know, there's got to be a plan here. And we looked at Vancouver, who, you know, because nothing's new in the world, and Vancouver <laughs> did all this work around laneway housing. And what it did was actually... Um, it created a new type of housing which young developers got into, young developers who wanted to prove themselves. So they teamed up with the young architects who wanted to prove it. And you end up with all this new model housing. And so the answer is not that it ends up being blue sky, wacky, one day we will, mm. don't worry, we all live in mushrooms. No, it was, it's but it's not just new housing. housing. It goes back to what you're talking about before. It's increasing density, but it's bringing families and communities together, which goes back to Heidi, what you were talking about before about this this idea of what actually makes a true shelter. It's about about home. So when you hear about those kinds of ideas, what what do you think? Do you think that kind of solves or answers some of the questions that we're talking about today? Um, yeah, I guess yeah, it does. Like if you can. Um, build places where you know a community can be sustained and grow and um and not kind of be pushed out by the the rents being hiked up and or you know where, where you can kind of um ensure that people have some kind of security of tenure you know to build a life there you know i think yeah i think that can be an answer um yeah here you go yeah, I guess it's just, like, you know, I'm really excited by those ideas as well, and it's just whether um, whether it builds that for the long term, I guess, like how you can do these things that make, make an area more vibrant without just making it that much more expensive, you know? Ah, that's a good question. Like how you can... It's that, yeah, it's that whole thing of gentrification... Um, and when you're already dealing with what sounds like quite a wealthy suburb, bringing, bringing the diversity in there of housing types maybe makes a bit of a difference. But, um, yeah. Yep. What do you think? <laughs> no, one, no, no one's cracked it. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that they often say, I think, that innovation requires ideas and capital to come together. And quite often the capital doesn't have the ideas and the ideas may not have the capital. So you end up needing to have the broker... Where's Jean? She's gone, but you know, let's acknowledge her. So, because, and I think that's maybe a bit of an interesting one. There is some talk, like, there's nothing stopping half of us tonight deciding to do the co housing thing mm, mm. and, you know, throwing it all in and getting together and buying a block of land and whatever. But you do, like, we do live in a world where there's competing interests, and so we do need a level of convenience. We need someone to act as a broker because we're all busy and you know, we've got kids and stuff. So you do, I think you do need a broker that, bring, that brings over the long-term ideas, sustained ways to bring ideas and capital together. In an ideal world, he says, not looking at the audience, so, you know, urban growth, New South Wales, great one, a, a stable institution over the long-term who can squirrel f- some funds into a fund, into an R&D fund, an enterprise fund, we'll call it whatever we want, based on what we're... You know, the bog and flog. So, yep, we're going to do a whole lot of that, but we're going to then take bits into it to an R&D, dedicated R&D fund. We're going to put some criteria around that around sort of, yes, it's going to be the young and innovative. It's going to be experimental based on here, here and here. We're going to see how they go. We're going to see how they grow over time. We're going to take a curator's approach. We're going to monitor that to see where it's kind of not working. No, it's actually tipping into the gentrification. It's actually exacerbating the issue. Not, you know, so what else do we need to do in order to... You know, I'm afraid the answer is, A, 
Institutional support, we don't do that very well. Sustained effort and monitoring, we don't do that at all. And, you know, teaming of this creative capability, which is also a curator's approach, right? Because not everyone with an idea is a good idea. Not every good idea deserves to... Except for all of your ideas, too. Except for everyone here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Except for all of us. (laughs) We're all special. But it goes back to that idea of um, you you might end up having a gentrification in those suburbs, but you are actually asking us to share better, to share more, to transform how it is that we live, which gets back to this idea of co-housing and and cooperative arrangements, which which you're inspired by, Hugo and and Heidi, as well. Um, You've got a project that you've done in Canleyvale um, that kind of has similar ideals, but for, I suppose, a different type of demographic. Is that right, Hugo? Yeah, so the Capit Bahayan housing project. Um, Cabot Bahayan are a Filipino housing cooperative who've been operating for 20 years in Western Sydney, and they're part of... There's a whole, like, from 1990, I think, they instituted within Department of Housing all these housing cooperatives that could manage and maintain their own housing at, at basically zero cost to the government. And they were so successful in kind of accruing the rent that they were able to invest in a new piece of land and develop their own custom-built housing solution for that land. Um, And so it is, you know, it is building that kind of very, like, networked, socially engaged neighbourhood that you're talking about, Um, but with, with the kind of ongoing land tenure kind of embedded in it. Um, so I think that's also a very... So what, what does it look like, though, when you're talking about co-housing? What are you, what are you sharing? If we're talking about our so world of sharing in like the it's future... Still, like, it's still very kind of middle class. Like, it's, you know, it's a bunch of townhouses, basically, with a shared um, pedestrian street at the front, a big kind of um, shared office library, um, little, little decks... Uh, protruding out into that public space that people can kind of hang out on. The kids run around between the different units, kind of, you know, a bit of shared childcare going on. Um, yeah. But it is kind of in the landscape of um, suburban, um, like Canley Vale, and yeah. where, you know, you have the big blocks with the McMansions, so kind of where two of these McMansions are, there's six townhouses and kind of communal space, so... Yeah, but everybody's kind of... looking out for each other. You can have a space where you know the kids can be watched at the same time. Maybe someone's mm-hmm. elderly and they can age in place, for example, because there's a whole community around there as well. All mm-hmm. of these kinds of ideas are, are what are, mm. they're great. Are they great solutions? Can we design to to have these sorts of things in our cities more and more, Tim? Yeah, but it starts early, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's interesting to pick up that it's two McMansions put together to make the six. And so when we're subdividing, are we making room for this diversity of models that we were talking about earlier? Like, mm. And it does need someone to sort of say, no, well, maybe it's a... You know, there's some thinking around maybe we should graduate our suburb from high density through to rolling green hills and everything in between. So is there something that says, you know, you do prioritise these super blocks or whatever you want to call them because you've got to make it sound, you know, like it's got payback. <laughs> um, the super blocks near the activity centre, because that's what we call shops these days, an activity centre. Um, it all, it's all sounding really good, isn't it? What do you it? do with an activity centre? <laughs> yeah, um, Colouring um, in. Vibrancy. Vibrancy, vibrancy <laughs> in the activity centre. Yeah. <laughs> and so we do need to make the space in the subdivision. Like, it's, you know, it's, a, it's really early at, to, in order to make this possible. And you start to use words like subdivision and you think, well, you know, I don't know if Manhattan does that anymore. So can I just have a subdivision sort of... moment here, just in case we've not... This is like my battle axe block in Homebush where I grew up and I sell off part of the land to build another townhouse and we can get lots more people there. That, that's as simple as it is. That's, well, yeah, that's when... That's the retrofit. Yeah. That's the retrofit thing, often done badly. And there was a famous period in the 80s and 90s where we decided to do that, but then we still required everyone to have two cars. So that's where you end up with concrete, 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 paling fence and then lots of little houses. Whereas this is sort of saying at the outset where we where we literally carve up the land so you know we're out there in farmland no longer you carve it up and you start to say can you really simple sense i'm sort of saying you need to have bigger blocks for the co-housing to happen because mm. the bad you know what happens when you retrofit on a block that's what 15 meters wide by 32 deep is you've got no choice but to go sort of bang 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 and everyone's guaranteed a fence you know a view of the fence 
Um, so where we're talking about libraries and, and sort of common space and there's a sense of it being around, then you are talking about a different shape, a different shape block, like it's sort of physics. And you couldn't, you couldn't do that development if it was subdivided, like the development we did in Canley Vale, because once you subdivide it and you've got a property boundary, that suddenly brings up all these regulations about setbacks and fire regulations and things that really prohibit you from sharing, basically. Pesky regulations, like fire regulations. So you yeah. can't do many things. Well, we still can't do much because of the regulations. So you have to find workarounds, yes? Yeah, like, well, in that instance, it's everyone being happy to be on the same title. I mean, yeah, fire, fire regulations. There's still to BCA and, you know, no, one, no one's house is going to burn down. But... Um, <laughs> But you're right, so the banks suddenly get interested because how much of the title do you own? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, are oh, you renting here? Oh, mm-hmm. no, what is this? Yeah. You're not renting. So you can't get a loan. So it becomes really right. The financial instruments become really difficult, mm-hmm. which is why often, which is actually one of the reasons building societies and friendly societies had this brief moment in, you know, in Australia because they lent, they understood and they often lent, mm-hmm. they created you know, financial instruments. Mm-hmm. So there, again, that, that, that gentleman who laughed when I mentioned dark matter, I'm going to do it again. But, you know, the <laughs> idea that there is this, all this dark matter behind it that says, well, we may want it, but really the financial instrument's there to make it possible. The fastest growing demographic in Australia is the over 65 single woman. And are they after the four-bedroom home on the fringe? Oh, no, last time I looked. So they're after smaller. They are after community. They, you know, there is walkability, amenity, walkability. the whole thing. Yep. The Dementia Australia says that the increase in dementia over the next 40 years is 350%. We do, we've got one eye to that, which is like, where am I going to be when I need help and who's going to help me to, you know? And it's more expensive to live in a care, a care facility than it is to live in home, to, to grow in your home, to grow age in your home as well. So there's all these other factors that encourage us to try and stay and live in our home and be sheltered by where we, where we want to live. Mm. Mm. There you go. There's my statement for you right now. So many questions. We're talking sort of a rolling conversation here with Hugo and Heidi and, of course, Tim as well. If you have a question, please throw your hands in the air. Oh, Penny, I'm so surprised. It's Penny Craswell. Actually, I have a question about um, those cities you hear about in China where they designed a whole city and then no one lives there or, you know, there's ghost towns where everything's new but it's not, it hasn't worked. So how do you make... If you have a blank slate, how do you make a community work? Um, you know, exactly. Where is a blank slate? <laughs> you know, in I mean, um, we do. The upside of Australia's urbanisation is that we do all live on the fringe. So, the simple answer is that it's hopefully our future is infill where at least there is some support and services. The challenge, I think, and there's been this really good and healthy interest in cities and their development over the last seven years. 2009 was a brief moment where COAG developed some really good stuff and then it all fell apart. Can I tell you why? Because there was this work in 2009, I promise I'll come back to this. In 2009, COAG did this thing on what cities should be. They set up criteria and they made funding conditional on doing it right and a whole lot of things. And then they handed all that to a group called Scotty. Scotty is the Standing Council on Transport and Infrastructure. They did that in early 2012. If there is a reason we're now building roads, it's because the whole city's idea was handed to a group called the Standing Council on Transport and Infrastructure. Well, guess what they do? Mm. They build roads. So, you know, actually all that stuff we do, that boring stuff we do, matters because the outcome then ends up sometimes going to pot. But the thing about the cities was, actually, I think we didn't really have a serious approach to Australia's regions. And in some ways, the question is not, what do we do about Sydney? Because actually, there's enough to go around and we'll get it there. Sometimes we do it ham-fisted. Largely related to the West Connects, we do it ham-fisted, but otherwise. <laughs> and then the challenge is not so much that. I think the challenge is regional Australia, where you've got the Australian equivalent of that which is what happens when you don't have support and services around you, when the, hosp- when the regional hospitals aren't there, for example. And so you start to see mum being transplanted down to Wollongong or something like that because it's the closest centre. So actually I think, I suspect that the challenge, the Australian analogy for that is that the regions need a bit of careful thinking. Mm. I don't think we've done that. No, absolutely mm. not. It's still many, many places to go. Well, do you want the mic? Yeah, you better record your amazing questions. 
Okay. Is that on now? Yes. Nice one. Okay. Um, I suppose what struck me is that we're kind of talking about two, well, several different things, but one is the sort of fantasy, in a way, of the tabula rasa, of what happens if you sort of start over. And the other is this existing urban condition, which is sort of failing us in lots of ways. And what struck me as quite interesting is what happens when we try to bring those two ideas together. So rather than starting over, which plainly doesn't happen, it doesn't work, these models of new cities don't... You can't kind of install a community into... You can't build a city and then install a community. Um, So what happens instead when you bring these ideas of how you could have a kind of evolving urban fabric into the existing... Um, cityscape and what what does your project sort of offer the real city rather than just the sort of conceptual art gallery space you know mm-hmm. how can you start to draw this idea of these malleable spaces or kind of evolving community or I mean an infill in a way is, an, is a solution but maybe there's other solutions that come out of a conceptual project that actually could have some real life mm. implications. Like, how could we draw this, stitch these two kind of competing ideas into each other? Hugo, Heidi, it? it's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, um, that is a great question. I think, like for me, it's a, it's about our fixation with property is really the kind of critique that we're trying to bring up. And so if we can start to be a bit more creative about the way we think about property, like if if people could start to think, well, you know, we've got all this wasted space around our fence lines where none of us can build anything because we've all got to have three-metre setbacks off every boundary line. What if we took those down and we started building secondary dwellings, which we're actually allowed to do through the state environmental planning policy? What if we started to kind of, rather than just think, well, you know, on my little patch of ground, I've got to have everything that my family needs. What if we started thinking, well, actually, you know, the guy two doors up, you know, we could build a great workshop there. We could start to, if we could start to share things a little bit more and start to view our city a bit more collectively... Yeah, and also I I guess um, your question makes me think about public space and the opportunities there. Um, Like out the front of our apartment block where we live now, there's a council verge that we've taken over with our neighbours to just make veggies and, you know, um, kind of, yeah, occupied this space, which is actually pictured in the... um, in the gallery when you walk in <laughs> you can see the the structure kind of set up there but I think you know there is the opportunity to um, really work with local governments and challenge them and ask them you know to for permission or not ask them just, just do, do it do it anyway and then, yeah and then they'll deal with it <laughs> and find a way around it um, um, yeah perhaps as well just thinking about that also questioning how much we really need like Australia at the moment you know, despite having, you know, completely unaffordable housing in the cities, is also building the biggest houses in the world. Like, 214 square metres is the average new house size, which is, like... It's tiny. What are you talking about? <laughs> My place is so much bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just, just th- thinking about, you know, what are... What do we really need? Like, what are the essentials? And is all that much extra space really worth the kind of lack of human contact that is the kind of reciprocal Mm. part of it. Big old house might have that great TV, but it's not making us happy. Jan Ryan. Uh, This is a question just to think around outside of the um, idea of houses, because I think one of the... To answer your question, Hugo... um, to respond to that comment of yours, one of the things in Australia is that 
you know, really when you've got it, you don't want to give it up. And I think that's the story. People are kind of... The reality is that they don't really want to share. I mean, we do, because it's kind of haute couture, you know. It's a, it's a, a great experiment, and, and I support that. And I live between the country and the city, so I see more sharing in the country. But it's... Um, by necessity, because people don't have jobs, their properties are not worth so much, you can buy a house in country towns for $200,000. In Sydney, you can't. So the question is not to think so much about the housing, but to think about the structure around which the housing is made possible. Banks. The collusion with... Uh, political collusion, I, I think it has to be. Um, I think it was... Robert Menzies, who started the uh, capital gains-free uh, house and decided to align housing with stability and family. So I'm wondering, Tim, of whether with your policy hat on, whether there should be more discussions around ownership and structure that is not about housing per se, but about the value that we've given it politically and culturally, which is very rarely addressed. I mean, it's addressed through things like negative um, gearing and, and investment properties and so on, but it's often not talked about because it's untouchable, the family home. I think there's something in there that will unlock some of this stuff and give a greater sense of value to the sharing and to community and things which we know to be important, but they're going to be suspended while all the money people have got is in their house, and it's in Sydney where all the jobs are. So the regional towns and cities don't get a look in on this because the structures work against it. So it's a bit, bit of a oh, monologue a there. Yeah, no. Sorry, I was doing what you do, just throwing a whole lot of ideas yep. together. The, the, um, which is why you and I always get on so well, Jan. Um, so there's a couple of thoughts to that. One is... Um, there, so the good news is... There are people like... There are people. There are institutions like Westpac, through people like Siobhan Turhill, some of us in the audience know Siobhan Turhill, who, have an underst- who train as an architect, who understands that link between sort of social sustainability and the, the physical world we then choose to build. And, and we are reaching such a, such a tipping point, to use a word, that I suspect... That the good news again is that fairly soon I think people will reach for the radical because Lord knows the last 40 years kind of haven't gone so well. So, and in that, if I confuse your question with the previous comment and offer a view on why this is more than an exhibition, is there's two things that you could see emerging from this type of work given the space and time to gestate. One is a parallel with Kieran Timberlake's work in the US. They invested a lot into mass customizable kits of parts. <clears throat> so it wasn't about the 70s thing, which is don't worry, you'll like it and it'll be cheap so you can afford it. You know, it's more, it's more given what we now have with technology, we can do this, this, this and this and they all fit together and no two look the same type thing. So one is kind of that type of approach. And the other is, more radically, Imagine a moment where Westpac says, here's an idea. At the moment, people, all the incentives are for families to go for broke. Even if you can't afford it, go for the 214, because that's all you've got. Instead, what if we adopted the sharing economy approach and that you, there was an incentive based on the ability to repay for, to buy the core? And then as you need to plug on, these come pre-approved. They've already talked to councils. There are seven local government areas, because they want the development, seven local government areas that come with pre-approval if you have one of these modules. And the thing is that you can trade them on eBay because they're kind of a bit of a plug-and-play. Now, the first government that then sort of says, so I see, so this is an industry innovation thing. This is a jobs training for the regions where what we do is we decentralise some of that. Some of that really big stuff we need to do. For example, services aren't plug-and-play at the moment, except for that light up there. Gallery lights, for some reason, are plug-and-play because of the nature of the track. Everything else is hardwired. Once we crack the plug-and-play services, these modules come in, and you can have them for the, the kids or for the media room, and then you trade them on when you don't need them anymore, when garden becomes more important. My point is that somewhere between the, the design model and the instrument that makes it possible 
mixed with that magic black box. Well, and how do you how do we you know how do you how do you turn it into a desirable thing that we want, which is that other sort of you know it's kind of often a marketing question, but it's not. Then somewhere in there is a really interesting and exciting possibility because it is actually about that is about regional growth and jobs and development and GE gets attracted to Orange or Coonabarabran or somewhere because they're interested in that sort of opportunity for the services component linked to some industry funding. And, but, you know, the problem is we just touched on seven different portfolios of cabinet yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But maybe under our new leadership. Yeah, it's, all, it's all OK. You never know. <laughs> Hugo? Uh, yeah, I just think that, um, like, the politics of land ownership is such an important point and really cuts to the heart of what we're kind of trying to look at with our project and I mean there's a couple of things I think I, I saw recently that there was a survey done where 51% of Australians were now saying that they never they never believed that they could actually own their own home which means that there is a demographic change happening that could mean that Politically, it stops being being such a kind of no go area to make any reforms in that space. But I think people can afford it; they just can't necessarily afford it when they want to. Yes. So there's a lot of there are options for affordability in Australia, but they're not. Yeah, but that's tied in with services and opportunity and social connection and. And, and where these new financial models can kind of emerge that sort of do allow a more sharing uh, aspect to housing, which allows modular, um, of course, advantages like this as well. The are too big. They're not too big. You know, and then Graham Hugo, the former demographer who died, unfortunately, recently, he was totally relaxed about it. He said the system will, will solve itself. He said, you look at the stats, the ageing cohort and where they live and the houses that they have They'll be gone in 10 to 15 years. Um, Graham was a wonderful man who himself was in his late 60s. So he was saying, we're all out of here. And in the long life cycle that, you know, that generations represent, this will very soon both come to a head but also solve itself. Either well or not, we don't know. But the point is all those large homes where, you know, we do have the four spare bedrooms are about to be up for grabs, and the question is, how do we do the thinking? And he was Mr yes. Relaxo, because yeah, yeah, he was yeah. saying, don't worry, that, you know, that there's such a wave coming that it will solve itself because the market's, you know, the, it's such a large problem, there is a market yeah. for a solution. Um, there's a question towards at the back, yes? I have uh, some thanks to offer, a comment and a question. Firstly, thanks to you, Tim, for that wonderful idea of pre-approvals. You can't lodge a DA for a modest project, say $200,000 renovation, for less than $40,000 in fees to architects, consultants, councils and so on. It's crazy. So that is a wonderful idea. Thank you for that. The comment actually also applies to your dark matter. You made my night because cities are dark matters in Australia with good ideas go to die. <laughs> and the, um, the question is to Hugo. I think you said about the Canleyvale project that they made money from it. When you said they had a library, I sort of woke up, you know, I left my glass of wine to one side here. Imagine putting a library in a, in a, a little project. When I say to um, unit developers, can we have a little place for the body corporate to meet? They say, well, where's the profit in that? Mm. And so I'm interested... You said they made money in the Department of Housing to go on and build other projects, this little division. So that's really interesting. And they put libraries and stuff in. Tell us well, about that. Yeah, so it's, the reason they made that decision is because the, the tenants are the developer in that case. And the, whole, like the, the financial mechanism by which they were able to accrue the rental surplus is basically they... They manage and maintain their own housing stock, which is owned by Department of Housing, for 15 years. Nobody gets paid a cent. It all just goes into occasionally, you know, repainting something or, you know, fixing someone's fence or something like that. So there's very little outlay from the rent 
So kind of, you know, in one way, you can see how much extra we're paying in rent, which is not actually, you know, paying for anything. Because in that case, the rent is staying within the property. And then that's, that's enough to put down, to buy outright a new piece of land to then develop. And, um, yeah, I think, I think it's just such an exciting model um, for that kind of self-development of communities coming together and working out their own solutions. And if we could be making the decisions about... So a bottom-up approach, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And make it, if, if we could make the decisions about the built environment based on the people who are going to live there, when they have the power to make it rather than what's going to look best on the developer's balance sheet, then we could have you know, some really exciting built outcomes. Mm. Thank you. Hi. Um, congratulations. Um, I've got a question about community or actually something to share that um, I think communities exist all around us even if people live in rental apartments there's still communities mm. and it's just a matter of going out and being part of them, reaching out so I just wanted to share that it was from the first question that was um, being said it's recognising that we are all part of a community. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. that we need to find ways of bringing us all together, which I think kind of harks a bit on what you were saying, Heidi, about going and owning the land, the verge in front of your house, making, mm-hmm. making a garden, you know, stuff what the council says. Mm-hmm. Just not too much basil. It can get a bit stinky from time to time. And can I... That raises in my mind um, an interesting one. I... Um, <clears throat> One of the members, the guardianship board is this really interesting entity where if you are, uh, if you don't have family and decisions need to be made on your behalf, there's a, a tribunal that decides whether you need help or not. Um, and what's really interesting is a member of that once talked to me about how innate in all our assumptions is that, again, a single model of who we all are as renters or owners, but we're all, you know, white middle class and we're all working. And they gave a couple of really interesting examples of two very severely mentally ill people who wouldn't live in enclosed spaces. So the really interesting thing just to keep in mind is, and I think it's a very interesting ethical question, are there times when lesser housing, lesser in that we're not talking concrete slab, but you know we're, we're, we are talking shelter actually, yeah. is appropriate given the strong overlap between homelessness and mental health? And when is that accepting and institutionalising a lesser form of housing for a lesser type of person? Mm. And when is it recognising that not all of us have the same expectations? It's just, and sorry, I haven't sort of rehearse the language on that one but it's a, for me it's really interesting because it's an ethical question it, you know, and, and it, again it's a useful reminder to us that we're not all on the same treadmill yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you well, I've got a big voice anyway it was just a follow on from that about um, government housing for someone who lives in government housing I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what one could do about government housing types of issues and the sort of communities that they tend to create mm. which might not be the sort of community that I mean, yeah, what's interesting about the Caput Bahayan thing is that that is government housing. Like, they're, that's totally part of the same portfolio. They live in the same housing stock, but because they, they have all the autonomy and all the control over... They, choo- they choose each other. They form their own group, so they're kind of selecting they want to live with and then they're taking responsibility for the maintenance and if they need to get something fixed they have the bank account of the rent that they're themselves paying that they can hire the tradesmen to do it so they're not waiting for a bureaucrat to come back and do it so it's a totally different system with much less wastage and much more direct for people and I think a lot of the you know it's a very complicated issue obviously but be, taking a group of 
very disempowered people and further disempowering them through the housing process is not a not a good recipe. Mm. It's also I think the nice thing about I think architects and designers are eternal optimists while balancing a healthy cynicism at the same time, which means that what you end up with has a chance of... It's a prototype, it's not just an idea. Mm. You know, and there's a difference between them. Mm. And so, where was I going with that? <clears throat> so, there are positive models. There's lots of really positive models. And I think by adopting a strength-based approach on, you know, it can work, so let's explore more why it does work. Very interesting to see at the moment work being done around... Um, the different types of, you know, um, foyer housing, ladder housing, these are often often social housing, but they're now being powered, and sort of Jan going to your question around financial models, they're being powered now by the social impact bonds idea. And the interesting thing is who state government chose, you know, they put a billion dollars into it in New South Wales, it's still sort of early days, they chose to pilot it with two not-for-profits whose name escapes me. But anyway, two good ones. And so, you know, it's, I think actually we are at a point where the funding model has changed. We're now measuring the social impact, not just kind of how many did you throw up and, you know, are they being damaged, the old thinking. And so I think that has the potential... And there's a, you know, there's a billion dollars. There's enough there to create a pipeline of different thinking. The challenge is always, I go back to it, <clears throat> the idea, the right idea needs to meet the right form of capital. And so who is the introduction agency? Who's the one with the curatorial vision on who the right idea is? Idea, please, right idea, please meet right capital. You two could do beautiful things. What do you want to see in your home? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I suppose the difficulty that I experience is that many of the things that you've discussed, which I always thought, oh, great idea, for instance, you know, we started doing some communal gardening in the areas, turned into, in fact, the last three court cases that I had to write stupid things to the court to whom it may concern. Yes, I did give permission to sell to use my yellow watering can. There's honestly a statement that I just wrote to the court that created this massive fight between them, the two above and to the side. We both have restraining orders against each other. They go and stab each other's hoses. They pull the hose things out of the ground so I couldn't water my plants for an entire summer. They just do the most insanely stupid things. I get one lot coming saying so-and-so stole my um, strawberry plant. These are for real conversations that I have every day, every single day. Um, that's without the scary man with the knife uh, who arrived on my doorstep at 5 a.m. in the morning. So there's also the really full-on stuff you just do, but there's a lot of um, things that you would think would be brilliant, lovely, I thought wonderful gardening, I love gardening turned into an absolute utter utter disaster, so I suppose it's just interesting mm. that when we're talking about community, I'm trying to imagine what the library would look like in our place <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I'd, I'd love it myself, but I'm just trying to see whether your picture of community matches yeah. the, rea- the reality of what it is the reality of the community that I live with mm. every day which gets back to what Jan was saying earlier, which is, you know, this is all well and good, but how willing are we to actually share? How prepared are we to do this? Which might mean, you know... Heidi, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can relate a, a bit to what you're saying. Like, in our apartment block, we've got a communal laundry and my washing machine just got broken by the kid pressing the buttons thousands of times. <laughs> so those kinds of things are really annoying. And, you know, you, you don't, we can't always choose our neighbours. But maybe, I don't know, I'm just wondering whether as a society we can try and learn the tools of communication and, you know, prob- um, problem solving and, you know, working together to hopefully confront those issues and get through them, I don't know, maybe maybe we can <laughs> uh, So I was going to say, I bought a property once am I scum, according to uh, this 30 year investment thing No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding um, I think it's time to wrap up, I'm getting the nod from Miss Penny Craswell um, What's the one thing, let's just wrap up with something pleasant, what's the one thing that you love the most about your home? Um, 
One thing only. Don't think too much. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's the, my plants. Okay. Yeah. Hugo? Yeah. Um, what about your new child? Sorry. Just, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. You've got to say that now. <laughs> yeah, no, it is the people, you know. It's my family and it's also our neighbours. Right. We've got, a, we've got quirks in our place. The, we're in a four-storey terrace. The top two don't connect to the bottom two. But it's the, it, the quirks that make the family work because the top two is where my mother-in-law lives and it's a pleasure. But she, No, I have to say that. If at 4.30 there's not a bottle of wine open, there's a problem. My mother-in-law comes down with the bottle and opens it. And so it's, it's, you wouldn't, an architect wouldn't design the house like this because you have to go out in the street and down. And it's a little thing about learning, learning when enough space is enough and you know, what the thresholds are. Mm. Actually, the quirk of the building that we've, we've bought, we've been able to buy it because it's a joint venture with the generations, although I'm still talking to the kids about their contribution, you know. <laughs> And so it's the, it's the way the, the physical quirks work to support the um, characteristics of the house, of the people in the house. Okay. Oh, it's so beautiful. Shelter, everything in between, owner-occupy. So Tim Horton, Hugo and Heidi, round of applause. Thank you very much for you for coming too. And thank you, Penny.